in 2013, Mike Zuckerman, a self-described culture hacker, attended the White House's National Day of Civic Hacking. Inspired by what he'd learned there, Mike returned to San Francisco and founded FreeSpace, an organization that focuses on sustainability and urban tactical development. In the spring of 2016, Mike went to Greece, where he spent four months rehabilitating an abandoned clothing factory in the industrial sector of Thessaloniki, turning it into a humane shelter that he and his colleagues named Elpida. Unlike the official migrant camps in Greece, where refugees have little say in the day-to-day operations of the camp, Elpida put its 140 residents in charge, and the results were remarkable. Not only is Elpida much less expensive to run on a per-person basis than official camps in Greece, the residents don't suffer from boredom, restlessness, and disengagement like they do at NGO-run camps. As a pilot model, Elpida offers hope and improved living conditions for refugees in a place where no other NGO was able to provide this kind of support. I'm Mark Raunfelder, a research director at Institute for the Future, a nearly 50-year-old nonprofit think tank in Silicon Valley that helps organizations and the public think about long-term future trends to make better decisions in the present. Mike has been working with Institute for the Future as an affiliate since 2014 and recently accepted an IFTF fellowship to help uncover and study new paradigms for restoring vulnerable places and spaces, such as post-disaster sites, informal refugee settlements, and decaying urban neighborhoods. I spoke to Mike about his work at Alpida in August 2016, just days after he returned from Greece. Hey Mike, how did Alpida get started? So the idea for Alpida was by Ahmed Khan, who spent the last year and a half or so in Greece observing the migrant crisis. And he foresaw that there was going to be this lack of suitable housing uh, and camps set up for the migrants that were there. Uh, So he had the idea of trying to use private philanthropy and uh, working with, you know, either cities or the church um, or the government to try and uh, set up a space that meets the humanitarian standards. Tell me about the refugee situation before Elpida. Yeah, well, it's been a, a really dynamic situation over the last year or so, uh, starting with a tremendous amount of flow, you know, two, 3,000 people a day arriving in boats from Turkey to the Greek islands. Um, that was a situation that no one was really prepared for, and uh, the migrants didn't have the destination of Greece in mind. They uh, mostly were heading to, to Germany. Just Greece was uh, an entry point to the EU. And, you know, over a million passed through Greece. Uh, but back in February, the uh, northern border of Greece is with Macedonia, or as they refer to it as Firum, the former Yugoslavic Republic of Macedonia, uh, shut their border and built uh, a large fence and military patrolled it. And essentially you had this uh, backup of people who were heading to Germany and got stopped at the border. And that formed a camp called Idiomini. Uh, It was a village of about 70 people, and all of a sudden you had 15,000 migrants there waiting for the border to open. This was a a really big challenge for uh, the NGOs, for the migrants themselves, for, for Greece, and it really kind of highlighted this transformation of, you know, the EU being open borders and to making a big change in the, the whole dynamics of the EU. Greece's government is really cash-strapped. So what were they able to do? So you had this situation of the people arriving on boats uh, to the Greek islands and making their way to Europe and then getting stopped to Idiomini. Um, but about 
A month and a half ago, the government made a decision that they were going to close all of the informal camps. So that included the at the border of Idiomini, but there were also several camps around northern Greece, close to the border, at gas stations, at hotels, uh, as well as at the, the port of Piraeus in Athens. And so the government declared that they were going to close these and relocate people to official camps. And this has all transpired in the, the several months that I was over there. Um, and essentially the solution for putting uh, or for, for housing the migrants was to rent these warehouses and, and factories and essentially just put uh, military tents inside. Um, that's where the majority of people were relocated and uh, the UN, uh, UNHCR, uh, has you know, audited these camps and they've said that they don't meet uh, minimum standards. Uh, the, the CDC equivalent, the Center for Disease Control of, of Greece, has gone in to these camps and said that three-quarters of them need to close um, because they're spreading communicable diseases. And so that's the current state right now uh, in the end of August, that we still have a tremendous amount of people housed in substandard conditions. Um, the funding for this, uh, as, Greece is, uh, as Greece's government is cash-strapped, uh, they have uh, been relying on NGOs and also funding from the, the European Union. There's a, a, a batch of funding called the Eco Funding, uh, ECHO, that uh, heads out to uh, both NGOs and to the, the Greek Ministry of Defense. Uh, a lot of the, the labor and the materials are being sourced by the Greek military. What is the quality like in the official housing? To be honest, it's, it's substandard. Uh, there's infrastructure-wise, uh, lack of hot water, uh, lack of water at many times. Uh, the toilets are chemical toilets, porta-potties. Uh, the, the migrants typically prefer the Turkish-style toilets, the squat toilets, and uh, the children go into the, the Western-style porta-potties and just use the floor. So about half an hour after they're cleaned, they're dirty again. And uh, same is the uh, case with the showers, um, the drainage. Uh, so you, you, you have a situation where people don't have access to all of the hygiene and sanitary needs that, that uh, putting a large group of people together would, would require. Um, on top of that, they're uh, living in tents uh, that are inside buildings. And uh, they're not designed for people to live in. Uh, they're very... Um, crowded, and then you have the other layer on top of that uh, is the services. Oftentimes the food is uh, not desirable. You even had instances during Ramadan where people were fasting during the day and they wouldn't even eat the food in the evening. Um, and uh, lack of medical. You know, there's been cases of people who have uh, died because they didn't have uh, medical response in time. And uh, there's violence. Um, so, yeah, there's a whole slew of things uh, that are, you know, making the, the situation that the migrants are living in uh, less than ideal and, in fact, quite, um, quite sad, um, but also, you know, dangerous. It's, uh, you know, these people came to Europe hoping for a better life, fleeing uh, war and uh, have a lot of mental trauma. And, frankly, they're not being received very well. Um, 
and yeah, that's uh, the reality of the situation right now. Uh, there is money being spent and resources and people working on it and a tremendous amount of volunteers. Um, but the, the reason why is still a bit of an unknown. There's only 57,000 uh, migrants currently in Greece. In Turkey, for example, you have 3.5 million. So it's not a numbers you know, issue. Um, it's just a, uh, it's either a political issue or a lack of efficient deployment of resources. So could you explain a little bit about how Alpida is different from existing migrant housing? With the design of Alpida, we've included opinions from the, the refugees themselves uh, from the start. Uh, in addition to sector leads in you know, wash, water sanitation, hygiene, uh, protection, uh, there's a lot of issues that go into setting up a refugee camp that are not typical of uh, ordinary construction projects. The uh, idea was to, to ask them, what would they like to see in a place? What's lacking in this place? Uh, observe how they set up their social spaces in these informal camps. Uh, how do they uh, cluster together amongst families or ethnicity? And uh, really, you know, to the the the, uh, the extent of bringing the blueprints into the camps and locating people who were architects back in Syria or uh, in, um, interior designers and, and having them put pen to paper on the, the actual blueprints and using those with our architect, uh, Heratini, a local Greek woman. Um, and, you know, the reason that she was the architect is because she was willing to take input uh, and you know, have it be a dynamic process that that there was there was you know changes constantly made as new um, you know new factors were brought up by people who have experience and by the refugees themselves. So uh, that's you know one of the main differences in Elpida is this you know using the design process that's iterative and participatory with the end user who are the the migrants themselves. Um, some of the things that they requested were uh, privacy and security, um, natural light, uh, hot water, Wi-Fi, uh, education for their children, and you know, utilizing all of these these inputs, we were we started to to build out the space where uh, from scratch we weren't going to use tents inside, and we uh, located a. Uh, 60,000 square foot former fabric factory and began to demolish it, remove the wiring and start from scratch in setting up uh, rooms. And there are a set of sphere standards that are referred to that are the minimum requirements for uh, temporary housing. They include things like 20 uh, people per toilet, uh, 50 people per shower, 3.5 square meters per person living space, uh, natural light, ventilation, um, one uh, handicapped toilet for every 500 people. So uh, these are the minimum standards. We use those to inform our design, but we really wanted to go beyond the minimum because uh, the reality is that many of the migrants that are currently in Greece are going to be there for quite a while. Uh, there's a plan to relocate them, uh, but countries, the rest of the EU countries have pretty much stopped or greatly slowed their uh, acceptance of uh, asylum seekers. Do you know what the cost per person at Alpida is versus 
the cost per person at the uh, official, more traditional camps? Yeah. Uh, well, <clears throat> so in uh, in trying to break down the costs associated with providing for the refugees, there's the design and build of the infrastructure, uh, and then there's the camp operations. We've only been open for uh, less than a month now, so we don't have a full gauge of uh, the operational costs. But as far as the the build, the infrastructure setup, um, what we've heard that uh, the large NGOs spend on simply water, uh, sanitation, hygiene, so water, showers, toilets, sinks at a field camp is uh, greater than we spent on the entire uh, build out to date, which is half of the building where we're housing uh, around 200 uh, migrants currently. So uh, if you're looking to compare the cost of, uh, if you're looking to compare the cost of the, the build out for the infrastructure, uh, I'd say we're right around half of what the uh, typical uh, larger NGOs are spending. Um, and the quality is, is certainly greater. Um, if you look at the, the toilets, for example, when talking to people in the camps, they said, we prefer the squat toilets and a, a hose. And if you provide that, we'll clean them ourselves. And that's exactly what we did. We installed porcelain uh, squat toilets with a uh, hose. There's no toilet paper in the bathroom and the toilets are spotless. Uh, the residents have set up a system where there's two rooms that are responsible for the men's per week, two rooms that are responsible for the women's per week, and they rotate. Um, and that's part of the whole uh, concept where, again, that this is, uh, you know, this is their home. This is an apartment. They're fully capable. Uh, they used to take care of themselves back in Syria. And that's one of the major, you know, fundamental differences in the approach that we're taking is uh, oftentimes refugees are seen as, you know, helpless and the uh, humanitarian aid system largely creates dependency on itself. And, um, you know, that's been one of the, you know, one of the main goals in, you know, one of our main aspirations at Alpida and in general with the migrant crisis is shifting people's opinions about who these refugees are. Uh, they have this, uh, through some in politics and uh, perception in the media, as being dangerous, um, potential ISIS, and completely helpless, and uh, you know, a scourge on society. And really, these are uh, families. Uh, they're good people. They want the same things that everyone else does. They were uh, largely middle-class, educated uh, part of society back in Syria. And uh, in if given the, the proper infrastructure, we have seen already, and that was the, the theory, that they would be able to run the place themselves and, in fact, be able to thrive. Uh, they have this kind of pent-up... Um, th their, their living situation at the... Uh, <clears throat> Their living situation at the, the state-run camps has largely left them helpless to be able to change their situation. And, uh, for example, there's a, a resident we have named Zohair who was um, a landscaper back in Syria, and he's 
taken ownership of that in at, at our space. Uh, he was out all night with a, a rake in his hands and his knees with no light, uh, creating channels for irrigation. And so we took him to the the uh, you know the gardening store the next day, and he bought seeds and plants and uh, plumbing to set up sprinkler system and drip irrigation. And you know he he's had this in him this whole time that that's one of the other main complaints we were hearing from the migrants is that they were bored and they have nothing to do and they don't feel empowered. And again, this is costs to maintain a camp where you usually uh, would hire people to pick up the trash and to clean the toilets and to, you know, take care of the grounds if they even, you know, go to that extent. But instead, uh, the, the refugees themselves have a desire and the, the skills and the, and the, the passion to be able to create uh, and, and be able to transform the space that we've set up for them into their home. Do you think that's the main cost savings is the fact that the people living there are contributing to the, the camp themselves? No. Um, <laughs> I think we do wind up saving money on certain sector uh, lead that we don't need to have present. Uh, like wash, for example, for cleaning the toilets and such. We haven't been open enough, or we haven't been open for a long enough time yet to determine exactly how much the, uh, or what our operating costs are. Uh, but this humanitarian crisis is different in several ways. One uh, of the major ones is it's in Europe. And a lot of these uh, pre-existing NGOs uh, have a lot of experience working in you know, Africa and other developing countries that don't have the same regulations and uh, political climate, um, working um, you know, different, different uh, codes and, and complications. Uh, so I've been referring to it as the Great Wall of Greece. Uh, lots of groups show up ready to help the refugees and they run into all sorts of complications where uh, even groups that have received money from the EU don't know how to effectively spend it. It's a very complicated political environment, and uh, this has led to uh, part of the fact that there even is this crisis. You know, um, I don't know. I had to. So, what was the question again? If, if I think the costs come from empowering the refugees, why, why is it? Why is it about half the price? per person when it sounds like the living conditions are so much better. You know, being able to work with private philanthropy money uh, and volunteers is something that's uh, unique with this project. Uh, there isn't a lot of bureaucratic uh, decision-making or uh, overhead that comes with uh, the way that we've set it up. You know, one example is we needed doorstops, and uh, there's you know, all sorts of horror stories about procurement inside of these large organizations where, you know, you need to get a couple bids and send a, a fill out a form where we just took a couple of, you know, two by fours and a miter saw and, you know, made them in 20 minutes and had 50 of them. And, you know, there's certain efficiencies that come with uh, being an independent organization. Uh, the uh, volunteers have been Fantastic. Uh, working with a group called Better Days from Moria, they uh, have done all the volunteer coordination. We've had about uh, 600 volunteers come through before we even opened our doors. And, you know, it's different working with 
uh, volunteers who are here because they want to be and they're really passionate and this is a calling they have in life versus hiring contractors. You know, we did it kind of half with Greek contractors and then half with volunteers. And, you know, the contractors are licensed and insured and they're dealing with things like the electricity and the wiring and the plumbing uh, and the carpentry. Um, but they essentially come in, you know, from seven to four and they follow the plans and do what the uh, site manager instructs them to. Whereas the volunteers have a lot more, you know, we kind of call it, they, they add the sparkle. Uh, they look at a space and, you know, bring it to life in their own creative way, or they bring different uh, experiences and passions that they have and apply them to the project. And it's remarkable to see what comes out of that because you just have this tremendous desire of people to contribute and to, and to help out. And um, largely the, the state-run camps, uh, you're not able as an independent volunteer to, to get access to the camp even. Uh, you have to be a formally registered organization. You need to submit a proposal of what you're going to do, and you need to be approved by the police department. And so uh, that's really been nice for us to uh, be able to uh, negotiate a contract with the Ministry of Migration, with Minister Muzalis, and uh, that stated that we had uh, the final say in design and build because we were providing the funding and we really have seen uh, a lack of proper design in the alternative or in the, the, the official camps. And we wanted to ensure that we were uh, providing what the residents themselves requested. And that's the kind of underlying philosophy behind the camp is that if we can provide proper infrastructure and um, enable the residents to uh, participate in the process and to, and to, to manage the, the camp themselves, then you'll really start to see a drop in the, the violent outburst uh, between them, uh, in uh, a lot of the problems that you're seeing at the, the regular camps uh, would, um, would decrease or possibly even go away if you can provide people with a digni dignified living space and a, and a purpose and a responsibility and agency over the space. And uh, for the, the most part, it's uh, worked faster than, than I think you know, th than at least than I expected. How many people are in Alpita now? Uh, currently, we, ha we have uh, 172 residents. We've had two babies born in the last week, so the number jumped up. Uh, we're largely taking in, or we're, we're only taking in families uh, with vulnerable cases. So uh, the way that we uh, set up the rooms, they're fairly large, and uh, each one has a window, and you know, natural light and ventilation. And so the design of the, um, or the, the way that the factory was, was built, um, it, for the top floor at least, which is the only floor we've completed at this point, uh, they're, they're designed for large families. And um, yeah, so um, we currently have 172 residents at Alpida. Uh, we had two babies born in the last week. Uh, we've taken in vulnerable case uh, families. So uh, pregnant women, uh, victims of physical or sexual assault, uh, people with health conditions, um, and uh, if there's an individual that, you know, really needed to get out of the camp, that was what we, you know, was prioritized by the ministry. And, but we don't just take them, we take their entire family to make sure we have, you know, family unification. Are you at capacity now, or do you think that... Uh the, the current site could could hold more refugees. 
We're not currently at capacity. Uh, part of this being a pilot refugee camp was to do it in stages. And uh, we've currently only completed the build-out of the top floor of a two-story building. And uh, this was intentional to uh, kind of test the waters and see how uh, this experiment would work, uh, to see how the residents use the space, and to uh, include them in the uh, build-out of the downstairs. So uh, currently, we have uh, just under 200 residents, um, but we're looking to get to a final target of about 600. What is it going to take to make this scale? Not only, you know, where you are now, but in other parts around the world. So although we've uh, taken in a number of families, uh, we still get requests on a daily basis from the ministry, from refugees themselves, through our, our Facebook group, uh, for, through volunteers who have identified vulnerable cases. And current, we, currently we are at capacity. Uh, so it's very, it's, it's difficult uh, to not be able to take in more. Uh, but the answer is, we really just need to build more spaces where people can live in a you know, safe environment. So uh, the intention from the start of this project uh, is that this is a pilot. There are being resources spent currently, and if this project can serve an example of how uh, resources can be more efficiently used, I think that could be really helpful. Uh, we've had a, a writer who's been following us throughout the process, and instead of having her piece come out in a, in a, you know, in a, a magazine or something, uh, we're looking to get this published in a, an academic journal. So maybe not with the same uh, distribution, but a more targeted approach to some of the decision makers and the policy makers and the uh, administrators of these larger organizations. Uh, we have a number of um, site visits uh, where we've had the, all of the big agencies come through the space. I've uh, had visits from the U.S. Consul General. Um, and, you know, at this point, we're really uh, just honing it. I, I look at my deployment to Greece in phases. Uh, the first couple of weeks was observation and uh, going around and visiting as many camps as I could in Greece and a few in Turkey, uh, talking to the locals and the uh, the NGOs and uh, the refugees themselves. Uh, and then the second phase was identifying a site and uh, securing it and getting a contract signed with the, the Ministry of Migration to be able to be an official camp. The third phase was design, build, and recruitment of partners and uh, sector leads. And the fourth phase that we're currently in right now is camp management. We have residents there. Uh, we're figuring out systems, uh, situations are arising that we couldn't fully anticipate. And as we're uh, uh, reaching kind of an equilibrium and a, 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 as we're reaching a, a as things are, are leveling out and we're getting our systems in place, uh, the next phase is about how we start to really bring some of the kind of innovative solutions out there to honing the camp and making it as self-sufficient as possible. Some of these things could include growing food on site and setting the uh, residents up with their own kitchens so they can cook for themselves and you know, really start to, um, start to hone the process so that the project is really 
uh, serving as a pilot. But, you know, this is, as we said, an iterative process and uh, really just trying to figure out uh, how the residents want to use the space. And, you know, I think concurrently and uh, informing future projects is now where, you know, is, is looking for additional spaces. Uh, there's a bunch of ideas out there of what's needed. Uh, we could do some more spaces. This model is scalable. Part of trying to help the... Uh, economic crisis simultaneously with the refugee crisis is instead of building field camps, uh, upgrading Greek infrastructure. There's a tremendous amount of latent buildings and uh, all sorts of infrastructure around Greece. In some ways, it's almost uh, reminiscent of Detroit. Uh, there's a lot of projects that started that never finished construction. There's a lot of finished projects that are currently vacant. And I think that's where uh, the scalability can happen is uh, utilizing some of the, you know, utilizing the massive amount of resources that are being poured into this, uh, this humanitarian crisis and use it to upgrade Greek infrastructure. And uh, the current Pritzker Prize winner uh, from Chile uh, is, is working with this concept of incremental architecture where he doesn't complete the, the housing units he has the residents move in and allows some of the, the budget to be left over to complete the building to their liking. And uh, after seeing him win the, the prize a few months ago uh, and reading some of the articles, I couldn't help but see his final product being what's, represent, or being what's currently available all over Greece. So um, I think there's a, a number of different ways that uh, we can reach uh, a greater number of camps and of, of housing units that are, are up to standard. And those can come in a, a variety of ways from taking over abandoned buildings, uh, uh, vacant apartment complexes, resorts, uh, but, but really focusing on how do we take this and make it an investment in the future of Greece and not just a stopgap that's going to be a wasted outlay. One thing that I'm, I'm curious about is kind of your personal involvement and interest in that. What's your background and how did you get interested in this project and end up becoming project manager? I've, I've always had an interest in creating spaces and the spaces that I'm most interested in are ones that are curated by the the people who use them. So uh, kind of applying some of the concepts that have come about in the last you know, 20, 30 years as we have digital communication, uh, such as open source and user-generated content and open APIs, and applying those back to the physical realm. Now, when you have the ability to copy and paste something, you can make trillions of copies with no additional cost. And uh, the same is true, and, and, and those are, that's, those are, you know, that's one of the conditions that allows some of these uh, concepts like open source and user-generated content to thrive. Uh, now, if you have a situation where uh, you don't have to pay rent for a building because it's not currently being utilized and you can activate it, uh, you can allow those same concepts to, to come into the the decision-making and the, the, the ethos of the, the building you're inhabiting. So uh, I've done several activations from uh, showing the uh, screening the World Cup in Uganda in 2010 to uh, helping create resource centers in post-disaster 
zones um, to urban revitalization, taking uh, empty buildings and renting them for a dollar a month and opening them up to the community in a project called Free Space. And uh, the, the brother of Ahmed Khan is a friend of mine who's familiar with my work at Free Space. And he just forwarded an email to me while I was at IFTF's 10-year forecast this year and said that they were looking for someone to open a, a camp and that previous refugee camp experience wasn't required. Uh, they were just looking for someone who can you know, figure out situations on the ground and uh, work not in a uh, structured environment. So uh, I got an email on, I believe it was Thursday, and uh, got on a plane on a Monday and uh, went out there to, to kind of observe the situation and uh, see what we could do to set up a space with these same kind of principles of uh, iterative design and um, you know, creating agency and you know, uh, you know, a, a human-centered design approach to uh, setting up a refugee camp. That's really amazing. Congratulations on doing something that sounds like it has a lot of potential. Yes, it's still it's still early. Um, it's a, a refugees and uh, in Greece right now is a very complicated situation. Sometimes it feels like a house of cards, uh, but we are um, you know really proud of the team that's come together and stepped up and uh, created something that really is uh, something to be proud of. And uh, first and foremost is providing a safe space to our residents. When are you headed back out there? <laughs> well, that's a question. If you know, even if I'm going back, um, I feel like I must. Um, I'm pretty hooked, um, and you know, I feel uniquely um, qualified, and even more qualified than I was when I went. You know. <laughs> for the first time, kind of on a whim. Um, and, you know, just being able to, you know, have the relationships already in Greece and, you know, we've built you know, a reputation for ourselves as implementers, which is not very common in the country right now. And um, so, yeah, I don't know. I'm heading out to Burning Man. And that's usually a good place for me to uh, ask those questions and figure out a plan. A totally different kind of encampment. Yes. Well, there's actually quite, you know, that's another one of the concepts uh, which may happen next spring is to set up a Burning Man type festival uh, for about, you know, 10,000 people. Do a design charrette beforehand and come up with what some of the ideal materials are and systems and processes and then purchase the materials and recruit builders and uh, basically set it up, have a party and then leave it in place. Don't take it down. So it's a, a Leave a Positive Trace festival. Mike, thanks a lot for taking the time to talk to me. This was fa fascinating. Thank you so much, Mark. For more information about Mike Zuckerman's work and about everything IFTF does, visit iftf.org.